Welcome to Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. Here's your host, Ben Wilson. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Living the Dream with Ben and Rodney. I'm your host, Ben Wilson, and my bulldog Rodney is beside me as usual. Today, we are joined by one of the true movers and shakers in Orlando, and that's attorney Tara Tedro of the Lowndes Law Firm in downtown Orlando. Tara is here to discuss the world of real estate development in Orlando and Central Florida, and also her unique law practice in the field of cannabis law, which has been a hot topic of debate throughout the United States the past few years. Tara is a shareholder at the Lowndes Firm, and she's in the real estate department and land use department. And like me, she represents commercial and residential real estate developers and investors. She's also chair of the firm's Cannabis Law and Controlled Substances Group, dealing not only with legal issues relating to marijuana and hemp licensing, cultivation and distribution, but also liquor licensing matters for hospitality companies and restaurants across the state of Florida. Tara is frequently a real estate speaker for the University of Florida, the Florida Bar, the Orlando Sentinel newspaper, and Fox News. So Rodney and I are very excited to have her as our guest today. You can learn more about Tara's law practice at www.lounds-law.com. So please welcome Tara Tedro to Living the Dream. Tara, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. So it's an interesting time to be a lawyer right now, to say the least, with all the coronavirus, COVD stuff going on. Before we start talking about the real estate practice, what inspired you to be a lawyer and to go into your current field of practice? Well, I will tell you, as somebody whose only real skill set is competitive arguing, it, uh, it limited down the fields that I think I was potentially looking at from a very young age. So I had done competitive debate in high school, went on a college scholarship for it. And I think at that point, making money off of arguing was probably being a politician or being a lawyer. And I figured maybe later I could be a politician, but I should probably first start and be a lawyer. And so that's why I got into that area. I wish I could say it was for a more noble reason, but to be quite honest, I just figured that the skill set was probably most aligned with being a lawyer. So see, that, that goes to my theory that most lawyers, now not me, but most lawyers, they're trained professional arguers. <laughs> that's, that's 100%. I mean, not all lawyers end up in court. You know, the, the stereotypical lawyer is a trial lawyer. And I think that's how law school education is really geared towards students turning into trial lawyers. But even if you're a transactional attorney, you know, the skills necessary for winning an argument are transferable as well to, to that area too. Right. Well, and you know what you and I do, they don't show that on, on TV. That, that wasn't the theme of L.A. law or Boston legal or suits. It was more the litigators. Yeah, exactly. I think I think I was hoping I was going to have the uh, law and order theme song coming on in the background every time I walked into a courtroom, you know, but real life is just dramatically different than what you read in a John Grisham novel or, or see on TV. Well, though, doing land use law, though, I mean, when you go to those city and county commission meetings, I mean, depending on the project, that can definitely be very interesting, especially if it's people who are like not in my backyard. And even though this great project is going to bring in revenue and excitement, it's like, well, I don't want this in my backyard. They, they fight it to the death because we, we deal with this in Brevard County a lot because we can be a little backwards in development. But it's like when you've got to progress and grow, you've got to be able to bring in new things. And it's not always easy. So being a land use lawyer is very interesting. I think that there's better TV in land use law than there is in anything else. My friends all the time think I'm making up stories when I tell them about what happens at local planning hearings and city council or county commission hearings. And I will tell you, I never thought in my adult life 
that part of my job as a land use lawyer would be getting booed by an audience. And so the number of times that I have been booed while talking during a hearing, I've lost count at this point. And at first it was kind of startling, but now, I mean, it's, you know, slightly amusing and par for the course, but it really is this odd microcosm of democracy at its finest, where local residents can truly impact the outcome of political decisions and it is this kind of wild west of practicing law where you don't have the constraints of all the rules of evidence like court does and you're negotiating from the dice. I mean, it is to me, it is the most fascinating area of law, but I could probably geek out about land use law all night. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, um, you know, the thing is, is when you go into those those hearings, you're exactly right about the political process being very, very critical there. Because let's say it's a it's a project that's controversial. Well, if a commissioner is up for re-election that year, you know that person doesn't really want to do anything that's going to tick off too many voters. But yet, you want to do things that are going to try to support the donors and, and growth as well. Because then people are like, "Well, you know what? There's nothing to do here. I'm so bored here." And so it's like it's a catch twenty two. It's like, okay, well, if you want to bring in this nice hotel that costs so much money to, to build and construct. Well, it has to be high enough so the developer makes a, a profit and the hotel, when it runs, can make a profit and offer all these things. But it can't be necessarily two or three stories. So Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Got it. All right. Well, talking about real estate, though, talk about the real estate development that you're seeing in Orlando and other areas of Central Florida. Florida is definitely a very progressive, growing state. It's very friendly for developers and all kinds of businesses from a tax perspective and stuff. And talk about what you were seeing before COVID-19, because we know COVID-19 is a game changer and we'll get into that a little bit in a minute. Yeah. You know, it's interesting across, uh, if you look at central Florida and Orlando specifically, I believe the metric is over about 60% of our market are renters. And so rental housing and, you know, high rise condos in downtown Orlando, apartments, those have been very hot recently. I mean, Orlando, I think, is ranked number two in America's fastest growing cities. They have a population of over 2.5 million. And our our prices have appreciated, I think, about 40, over 40 percent over the last 10 years. So Orlando is a great place when it comes to investing in property for first time buyers, but also for renters. I mean, there's we have still pretty affordable housing that you can find in Central Florida. The problem is, one, there's not enough. And two, there's not enough true affordable housing. So we're not talking about a high-rise downtown condo affordable. I mean, we're talking about the average citizen in Orlando, especially those who are so supportive of a majority of our market are having difficulty finding very affordable places to live. So I think we're going to see a bigger push, um, especially after something like coronavirus, for having true affordable housing projects. And I hope that the stigma gets removed on those projects because most people associate affordable housing with some sort of slum, you know, and, and that's and that's so unfortunate that that's the perception of what affordable housing is because those are people who live in affordable housing are people that, you know, 
do the things that we all live by and need, teachers, firefighters, police officers, things like that. So the housing market is, is one area that I think is going to pick up after you know most of this craziness settles down with coronavirus. But with, with 60% of the market being renters, I think we're going to continue to see a push for rentals, uh, such as apartments. But we're also seeing more tourism-related development when it comes to short-term rentals and these types of residential villas for families that want to spend four to six weeks, you know, coming from South America or over in Europe. So you can see a lot of those developments that have come about in Osceola County and in Orange County as well over the last couple of years. And Florida's tourism industry, in my opinion, will, will rebound from all of this, just how quickly is the question. But I think we're still going to see development that is geared towards the tourism industry which is the economic driver in the heartbeat of Central Florida. So those types of mixed-use projects that you'll see around the theme parks and around our entertainment districts are going to continue to grow in popularity. And if you just look at national trends, too, for the types of environments people want, you'll hear the phrase live, work, and play with frequency. And so that live, work, play model means we do not want an auto-dependent community where all we have is urban sprawl, of these clustered subdivisions that put a drain on local governments to have to provide resources to them, make sure everybody has to drive if they want to go anywhere outside of their neighborhood. I think those days are gone and having more opportunities for places that you can walk to somewhere to get something to eat, you can walk to a grocery store, or you can walk to where you work and have those options for entertainment, living, pleasure and employment all clustered around each other just really makes sense as an urban development model. And so I think we're going to also continue to see more of those mixed use communities springing up in any areas that are able to have infill development. Right. I know uh, that was a big thing in Miami. When I was in Miami, I lived in the Brickell area and they really made a big push with the Metro Rail and of course Brightline. And I know I saw where Orlando is doing that, I guess, with Sun Rail in downtown Orlando. So um, I guess they'll continue to be doing that because like you said, you want people to live downtown and try to not be as dependent on autos. And if you have the um, the trains and that stuff, it's a huge benefit to get cars off the road and also just encourage people to, to use those services, which the government intended to be used anyway. Oh, absolutely. It's just, it's really hard for local governments to try to retrofit entire communities to bring transportation in. So, you know, SunRail, fantastic idea. Unfortunately, I'm not going to walk a mile from SunRail to my office, right? So I could get to my office quicker just driving than I would taking SunRail. I wish I had an easier option. And, you know, you can imagine people who are living further outside of just downtown Orlando. It's a great option for them to utilize, but it's usually what they call the last mile problem. This type of transit can get you to a general location, but that last mile needs to be solved. And, and not everybody in Florida especially wants to walk in the heat or in the rain during the summer to go from a sunrail station to their office. So what do we do? Do we get the line bikes or the scooters or is it Uber or these cars that you can you know kind of rent by the hour? What, what are the options that we can have to really have effective transportation. And so transit-oriented development is just a fascinating land use read if you want to maybe fall asleep at night <laughs> reading something. But it is interesting. You know, it's, it's a noble goal for us to be able to incorporate transit, but 
boy, is it difficult once you've already built out a city to try to bring that in there. Oh, I know. I mean, you're you're behind the eight ball when you start because it costs so much money to do it, and then by the time you you finish it, well, the d- demand that you built it towards has been exceeded. But oh yeah, yeah. So interesting. You know, one of the things because I've been to downtown Orlando, I guess maybe like three times because of course I went to the lounge firm a couple of times. So nice office right on Lake Eola, which you could go out there and have lunch or take an afternoon walk. So that's a big benefit for residents, employees down there. But I guess they're trying to do more hotels, but in Miami, things would be like where you have a rooftop bar on top of a hotel or a restaurant. Are they trying to do more of that kind of stuff in Orlando? Yes. You know, some of the restrictions on where you can do rooftop either come from local code, whether you can have a utilization of a rooftop area or frankly, just just cost. So where do you put all your HVAC units and some of the other mechanical equipment if you're not hiding that stuff on the top of the building? And so I think to me, I wish there were more rooftop options because the weather in Florida is so fantastic when it's not the temperature of you know the sun and when it's not pouring randomly throughout the summer. But I wish we had more outdoor spaces like that that we could utilize. And so I think you're starting to see it a little bit more, but really downtown Orlando does not have that many rooftop spaces, especially if you compare it to places like Miami and South Florida generally. Yeah, I had to go to an event and we first started out at this place called Joysticks, which is like an 80s arcade. Oh, yeah. Joysticks is fun. Yeah. Well, that was right up my alley because in my house, I actually have an 80s arcade machine. I mean, right in my, oh, my awesome. living room. It's got like Pac-Man, Miss <laughs> Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, all that oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Kids these days will never appreciate the value of those games. They probably, I can't imagine what somebody who was born today would look at one of those games and just think, how boring that must have been. But the thrill that it was for when we were playing as kids, oh, it can't be replicated. Well, they had NBA Jam there, and this was a good NBA Jam where it was like, you know, Charles Barkley and Carl Malone and John Stockton and, you know, all the guys from the early 90s. So that was the good one. But it was unique because a lot of those stores, I think there were maybe like two or three, well, probably three stories. And so you just go and the ground floor really didn't have anything or maybe it had a, a, a restaurant but you walk up and that's where your joysticks would be. Or I think they had some clubs through there. And it was, it was kind of unique and different because they didn't really have that in Miami. The Miami clubs were like, not that I'm a big club person, but I mean, they're like these monster things and you can't hear people in there. And I'm like, what? This is right. my time. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the, I want to go to a club with all of my friends at which I can't speak to any of my friends because the music is so loud is definitely a phase. And Hey, that's, you know, there's time and a place and a crowd that's always going to love that. But I have been seeing a lot of bars catering more towards a unique experience, right? Because every bar can say, we serve alcohol, but if you're deciding between 250 places that all just serve alcohol, you got to have something else to bring people in the door. And whether that's ambiance or, you know, games, literally games or other types of entertainment that you can incorporate in. And I think those are, those are really gaining a popularity for a reason. Right. And the thing that I think is interesting about with real estate development, when it gets into hospitality and, and all of that is the, the people that are in their fifties now, that means they graduate high school the mid-80s. So like Adam Sandler is 52. Chris Rock is that age. So the people who graduated in the mid-90s, they're now in their 40s. So as they get older, even my parents, you know, they graduated in the late 60s and in the 70s. 
So the older generation, they're used to going to events and the rock concerts and all the MTV generation. So the expectation, I think, is still going to be we want to be entertained. And so I think it's going to be important for these towns to not just be suburban sprawl with a house and a strip mall in the Publix. It has the barbershop. They're going to need things to meet the expectations of their clientele or else they're going to move somewhere else. And I think Orlando does a pretty good job of that. I know there's always room for growth, but you know the trend from South Florida, I think, is starting to make its way more to Central Florida because I know Tampa has been trying to do that too. And of course, you know, when you got the the magic there, I mean, you've got the basketball and you've got all kinds of good concerts. So there's there's more to do in Orlando than just going to the theme parks. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. To me, you know, when people talk about, oh, you live in Orlando, you must go to Disney all the time. It's like, that's a, a different side of the world for us. <laughs> you know, we might, I might never go near any of the entertainment areas. And when I say that, you know, International Drive and the theme parks, I could go months without ever going to that part of the town. I mean, it's a great place to go if you have friends out of town. I mean, I like going to Disney here and there too, but it isn't the center of what we do as locals necessarily. I think that's a, a mistaken view of what Orlando is, is that it is it is just those theme parks. There's so much more, especially a lot of really cool outdoor beauty to Orlando that you can find as well. And one thing that you had brought up, which people want to have entertainment, right? That those generations are going to want and have those expectations with where they live. I think we're seeing that play out in uh, senior living options too, right? Or, even independent living facilities and assisted living facilities, it is not just a hospital-like, you know, kind of dreary place that I remember, you know, the type of place my grandmother lived in. That's not the type of place that they're building anymore. It's meant to feel, have the comforts of a home, not feel like any sort of institution or hospital, and typically has a lot of options, tons of programs for their residents, you know, entertainment options for them, a lot of them are wanting to have restaurants and alcohol service, so bars on site too. So we're doing a lot of liquor licensing for uh, senior living type communities because their residents have those expectations too. They, they want to continue enjoying their life, even if it doesn't mean they get to drive around, you know, to do it as freely, but they still want to have options for happy hour and things like that. I can't blame them. You know, you were talking about the apartment complexes and stuff. The apartment complexes that I worked on in Miami and then the ones even we're seeing here in Vieira, and I know it's the case in Orlando, the amenities that are in these apartment complexes are like resort-style pools. And they've got like a, a full gym, depending on where it's at. I mean, they've got different activities and things. And really, the amenities are probably nicer at the apartment complex than they are in the, the single-family home HOA communities, especially the pool area. Let's say you're somebody that, you know, 60 years old, kids are out of the house, you don't really want to maintain a yard, you know, you're here in Orlando for a while or Central Florida, and let's say the rest of the year you're you're in New York or North Carolina. They may prefer the apartment living because, hey, when the hurricane hits, you lock the door and leave. You don't have to worry about hurricane shutters, and you get all those amenities, and they have that flexibility. Are you seeing the same thing in Orlando? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at these large residential home developers. They are all bringing in amenities for their communities. I'll, I'll give you an example. Pulte Homes, you know, they have these amazing clubhouses and we're getting restaurant licenses for them. So they're having, you know, great meal service options for their residents 
And they're having huge built out bars with game rooms for the residents as well. So it's, you know, it's not just a pool area anymore where you go and there's, you know, two communal bathrooms there. I mean, it really is a hotel or spa-like feel with some of the amenities that they bring to their residential communities. And on a very side, side kind of geeky liquor licensing law note about that, if you are ever developing a residential community and doing a subdivision, make sure to check with the local government whether or not they will allow liquor sales and food sales as an ancillary use to the residential use. Because most local codes do not contemplate that. And part of your liquor licensing process with the state is uh, local zoning has to sign off on any new liquor license. So you want to make sure that they're not going to consider you having a you know true bar or nightclub type use just because you want to be able to sell beer and wine or beer, wine and hard alcohol to residents in a clubhouse or pool house type area. Yeah. And you know, uh, in my project in Vieira, when we sell land, we sell entitlements. And so we would say, you know, the entitlement for those who aren't real estate lawyers or developers, it's basically a right to use the land for a certain specific use. It's kind of like our, our zoning in a way. Uh, if you're in like the city of Orlando or something like that, you would apply the zoning code. But anyway, we would like sell land and we were like, okay, you can develop this property and you get a certain number of residential units. Well, residential is like you were saying, Tara, it's for residential use. So if you wanted to have a facility that also is going to be selling retail items or restaurant or liquor or whatever, we'd have to give you the retail entitlement as well, which we would charge more for. But I mean, that's, that's a fair point to all the the people out there. Before we start talking about the coronavirus stuff, I wanted to touch base on the the affordable housing and workforce housing as well. That's always a huge issue in South Florida because just like Orlando, they have all the hotels and all the transient people coming in for restaurants and resorts and stuff. And they need people to be the bartenders and the the servers and the hotel cleaners and, and stuff like that. And there are a lot of developers that they focus very heavily on affordable housing. It's very competitive. But the problem is, is like the land is so expensive down there that it's really tough. And so it's very competitive to get enough grants from the state of Florida and uh, all these other programs. And it's almost like they don't really have enough funding because they'll get the grants to the developers. But it's just like they'll build maybe, let's say, five or, or six projects in the state for the whole year. I know it's less than 10. Well, that's still not enough to make a significant dent in the problem that's in South Florida, let alone if already South Florida has taken half of those. What about in Central Florida? You know, what about in Tampa? It's a huge issue over there. No, it, it, it is. It's, it's a difficult one. And there's not, unfortunately, there's not one good solution to it, you know, and I bet, I mean, we could probably spend a couple hours just talking about potential solutions and then all the other layers of local problems you'll run into just trying to implement them. So hopefully somebody can figure it out at some point because we'll all be better off for it. Right. All right. So transitioning from all the excitement going on in Central Florida with real estate development, I just want to talk about the impact that uh, the coronavirus has had on that. I'm sure you have been like me and extremely busy getting your emails from clients and asking, okay, this coronavirus, is it a force majeure event? What can I do? Can I stop paying rent? Can I get out of my real estate contract? Talk about the impact that the coronavirus is having on the real estate down in, in Orlando. Yeah, you know, it's hard to sum up in a word. I think devastating is probably the best word overall. 
hotel occupancy is at just a staggering all-time low. I mean, if you look, hotels at 14% occupancy rates, an 80% drop. More than 40% of our local workforce is tied to the tourism industry. If you think about 40% of a local workforce in an industry that has come to a screeching halt, that industry is our lifeline. And so it is, it's a devastating impact financially for those employees and for those employers. And not to say that one deserves more sympathy than the other, but I, I think a lot of the employees and the tenants have been getting a lot of attention right now in the media for the plight that they're going through and trying to make payments. But, but don't forget that the landlords and the business owners, they have financial obligations as well. And they have payments that they have to make too. So I don't think anybody is coming out of this unscathed when, when you look kind of across the bow. When I talk to our, our clients and, and we have a whole team and we're, we're fortunate, you know, when you have closer to a hundred attorneys in an office, you have experts and they're, they specialize in, in specific parts of an industry. So we have a big real estate practice, but we'll have our landlord or leasing experts. You know, we have a, a condo expert, you know, your friend, Alex Dobrev, right? We have, we have experts who can answer these hyper-specific questions for our clients. I'm going to answer this somewhat superficially, just because I think that there can be a, a lot of discussion as to what we're seeing and, and, and kind of what the advice would be to those specific parts of the real estate industry. I think the first thing on both sides, I mean, whether you're a tenant or you're a landlord, you have to figure out what are all of your financial obligations on a monthly basis or in the near future, and what are your options for deferring payments, right? Do you have options to defer payments and open up those discussions? And then do you have eligibility for any stimulus money, loans, or grants? I mean, that is the first place you need to figure out to get your books and affairs in order is what do I owe? When do I owe it? And then who owes me what that I rely upon in order to meet those outstanding obligations? So, you know, if we, if we look at tenants, of course, if you're a tenant, review your lease, determine if any provisions such as force majeure applies to pandemics. Talk to your landlord, see if there are alternative payment plans, see if there are rent reductions that are available. I mean, landlords are going to prefer some money over no money. Unfortunately, what I'm hearing predominantly is just there's no deferment. There's just no payment period. So it's not even that folks are discussing, oh, can I defer? It's just that payment isn't being made or, you know, they, they are discussing deferring or reducing rent in the interim and increasing it on the back end, but then still unable to make those reduced rental payments too. Unfortunately, then I think we're going to see a lot of this play out in court. I think we're going to have a lot of lease interpretation, contract provision interpretations playing out in court. And it's Sure. I mean, from a, a legal academic standpoint, it will be fascinating to see how insurance coverage starts to play out. You know, it'll be fascinating to see how these interpretations of clauses that people typically took for granted and, you know, boilerplate language on force majeure. No one ever really thought about that twice. Yeah, great acts of God, whatever war. But no one was talking about pandemics. You know, maybe some were, but, but across the board, I think most were not. So we're going to see a lot of these issues making their way through the courts and, and, and some precedents going to get set that will be helpful the next time this happens, but that doesn't do a lot to, to settle people's fears and, and problems of dealing with their current situations. 
Yeah, and if you're a landlord, like I said, you got to figure out if you have any, any, if you can work something out with your tenants, it's most favorable for both parties. Work that out. Obviously, get all of this in writing. This is not a time for handshakes uh, with, with any of your tenants or anybody that you're doing business with. But maybe in return for providing rent relief, you know, seek some concessions from your tenants. Maybe you increase their financial reporting obligations, any other additional remedies if the tenant defaults, additional security or guarantees, additional bankruptcy protections, removing you know, any special tenant rights like expansion options, substitution rights, rights of first refusal, purchase options, early termination rights, assignment or sublease rights, self-insurance rights. I mean, those are things that you can negotiate. Are those as good as getting cash in hand that you expected to get and are supposed to be getting every month from a tenant? No, but you know we're, we're not dealing in a situation where I think everybody can come out a winner. It's just we're trying to minimize losses for as many people as possible. So hopefully both parties are able to find an amicable resolution and a resolution that doesn't put them, you know, set them each back too far financially. Yeah, it was interesting. Today, um, I actually participated in a, um, a webinar and we were talking about this and just getting input from litigators and stuff because in almost all of our commercial leases, we have the force majeure and we're, we're usually the landlord. And so we're like, okay, well, if there's a force majeure event or something like that, rent, the obligation to pay rent is not mitigated. You've got to pay rent. But sometimes it'll be like, you know, what if it's an act of God, force majeure, then anybody's obligations, whether it's landlord or tenant, is mitigated or uh, deferred. It was interesting because the litigator that was talking about it, he said, because most of these force majeure provisions, you're right, they don't talk about pandemic. And he's like, the issue is whether or not the coronavirus would be an act of God. And he said, I think you can make an argument that it's an act of God because it's definitely something unexpected. It's definitely something outside of somebody's control, which is a requirement for force majeure. And the only thing close to something like this was, I think, the influenza or Spanish flu, like in 1918. So it's like a hundred year event. So he's like, but even if you argue force majeure, you've got to go to the next level and see, okay, does it impact your ability to perform the obligation? And where the case law is right now is that they've held, at least on these other events, that this type of event, if it's not profitable for you to continue, then that's not an excuse for deferment. Just because something is not financially profitable or some event happened that caused you to not get as much income, financial inability to pay is not an excuse. Now, that being said, if this goes to a court, maybe a judge has a different interpretation on that. You never know. So right now, the argument would be that a landlord does not have to give a concession but then you turn around a little bit and you're like, well, that might be what the law is, but what is best for both sides? Because you don't want a tenant to not be doing anything in there. You want to try to keep your tenant there because when this turns around, you want to have a tenant and maybe you can work with them. Like you said, give a rent abatement for a few months, but condition it that, all right, tenant, you've got to apply for the federal grant program and the paycheck protection program. You have to use good faith efforts for that because if that tenant leaves, well, then you've got to try to find another tenant who's probably been suffering through this as well. And, and it may be very hard to get somebody in there. So from a lender's perspective, you know, the landlords, like you said, has got to go to the lender, make sure the lender signs off on any rent reduction payment. If, if there's a mortgage involved, which there probably is. But um, I think at the end of the day, 
it's like, regardless of what the law might be, you've got to try to work together from the landlord and tenant perspective because everybody's losing right now. Right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The other thing we've had to deal with too is on purchase contracts where it's a situation where there are going to be people that are going to try to take advantage of the situation. So we had people reach out and be like, well, you know what, my closing schedule for the middle of April and because of coronavirus, I'm not going to be able to close because I've, I've got to stay in my house. And we're like, well, you know, real estate is still an essential service under our governor's orders. So is banking and so is conducting real estate closing. So from our perspective, we're not given any extensions, except we might give someone like a week or something just as what we would normally do for a customary buyer, but we're not falling into the the excuse for real estate closings. But yet that's completely different than when you get into a construction situation. Because like with your projects where someone's building a hotel or something, that is something where you've got force majeure there because perhaps I would argue and say, well, probably not because construction activities can still occur. But let's say you get to something where all of a sudden you can't get deliveries down the road trucking's not allowed, it very well could come into play there. So it all depends on the facts, as the lawyers like to say. Yeah. And and it's not even just, you know, thinking about building the building. Sure. Okay. You can build the building, but if all of your lighting fixtures come from outside the country, you know, I had a, I had a client saying, yeah, great. All of our lights came from China. So can't get any of those. So we could build this, but we can't turn any lights on because everything that we had ordered is now so far behind schedule. But it, you know, there is that interesting distinction um, that you had mentioned between essential and non-essential businesses. And with state closings, I mean, with online notarization options, you know, with being able to have online closings, you can e-record closing documents. I mean, I think that there's there's a lot of ways to facilitate life going on as normal for the real estate industry. I just think it's, it is the financial unknowns that are probably causing a lot more hesitancy than the mere act of having to do an online closing. You know, the thing that's going to be interesting with talking about the leasing situation, I mean, at least like in my building, we're still able to access the building. We're accessing, we're able to work. People can work from home remotely. Maybe your office building's the same way. Probably a lot of the strip centers, so you know, the, the, obviously the Publixes of the world, the Walmarts, all that, people can still access that and go to work. But if you think about a situation where there's a mall that's enclosed, that mall may not be open. And so if you're the, the Sears or the JCPenney's, you know, your argument about force majeure is really stronger, I think, because not only is it you can make the argument, well, hey, yes, it's, I'm getting lack of revenue here. And even if you've got a case that says, well, look, a lack of ability to pay is not an excuse. But if I'm that tenant, I'm arguing constructive eviction because I'm not able to physically get in there to work. I'm not able to physically have my clients come by and I can't even offer even a drive through service like the restaurants are. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I, I hope that with landlords and tenants, they just try to work it out and have good faith. But you know, as well as I do, you've got people on both sides that will try to take advantage of the situation, which isn't right. But, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting. And, and I do think about like with our parks, the theme parks, I mean, with them being closed for so long, because it's going to be at least through the end of May, most likely, maybe, maybe June. When you look at your hotels, they don't really have a constructive eviction issue. They've got a deal with their lender and it's like, hey, I'm going to need some help. And I know they're they can still apply in many cases for the federal grants and stuff like that. But 
those hotels are in a tough situation right now. Oh, yeah. The, the American Hotel and Lodging Association said the coronavirus is more damaging than 9-11 and the 2008 recession combined. I mean, that is that is a profound statement to make about the hospitality industry. I mean, it is. It, it, and when you see those types of vacancy rates, especially in central Florida, this is prime season for us, right? Spring break. This is the time when we are at almost max capacity in our parks and our hotels. The hustle and bustle of Central Florida around this time is what drives the energy and the economy here. And it's just done. I mean, there, there is nothing going on. And maybe you say, oh, minor silver lining. Some of the hotels can get done renov- overdue renovation projects. It's like, but with what money? Why would they want to put that money into a renovation project when they don't even have 10% of the hotel filled right now? And, and for theme parks, sure, great. You get to do a deep cleaning. One, all these places are going to have to do that anyway as a proper response to the pandemic and as a preventative measure moving forward to reduce any liability. But two, a deep cleaning is not going to offset all of the negative impacts of having a park with zero visitors for weeks on end. I, I hope this is the last time that this happens for the next at least 100 years, or I hope it is a true 100-year event, but I fear that perhaps it is not. Maybe we'll all just be more prepared for it next time, but our tourism industry is just taking an absolutely dramatic beating right now. I don't think it'll be decimated permanently by any means, right? Florida rebounds from natural disasters with some alarming frequency, but typically those natural disasters like hurricanes don't shut down the entire state. It hits parts of the state and typically it's once and it does, and it's for, so it's for a finite beginning and end, but this is so unlike the natural disasters that we've had to deal with that there's just no way to prepare for how you bring things back online after this is all over. Right. No, I agree. You know, and another thing that you mentioned, and I just want to highlight is the insurance issue. If you're a company right now and you're having these issues with a closure for a coronavirus or even business interruption, you really need to consult with your insurance agent because hopefully you've got business interruption insurance. But the thing about it is, Terry, you know as well as I do, these insurance policies are full of exclusions. And I fully expect the insurance companies to try to fight like tooth and nail to avoid paying on business interruption insurance by trying to find some type of exclusion. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so there there are people that I will call on when it comes to insurance questions, you know, outside of just those inside of the firm, right? There are, for my cannabis or my hemp clients specifically, I have a friend named Mark DeFanti, who is the founder and CEO of the MHP Group. He's fantastic when it comes to figuring out kind of what's happening, what protections you have under your coverage. Billy Wilson with Hub International here locally is also fantastic. I mean, you need to have these conversations to figure out what your coverage is, but also to figure out how insurance companies are posturing as to what your coverage actually is and the position that they're taking about some of the existing coverages. And we're already seeing this playing out in court as well. So insurance litigation has already started. It will be very informative to see how some of these big cases end up because it could cripple the insurance industry depending on judicial interpretations of some of those provisions. Yeah, I know it's going to be a very interesting thing and it uh, just kind of stresses the point too when it's time to renew insurance policies. People are going to be thinking of 
things like coronavirus and coverage and negotiating that with their insurance companies. So, and that's one thing, you know, as lawyers, people like they'll look at us and be like, Oh, we'll just go to the lawyer and handle everything. And that while we do help with a lot, I mean, the insurance specialists are so important, like what you just mentioned, because I mean, insurance is very technical. Every word matters and it's very important to work with specialists on this. So Terry, you mentioned rebounding. What do you see from Orlando and Central Florida as far as rebounding from the coronavirus once this is over, which we are hoping June at least? What's your take on the rebound? I wish I had a crystal ball so I could give an accurate answer. But the more I listen to some of the top minds in economics and futurists, you know, those types of folks, nobody seems to know. It is this 50-50 absolute bleak assessment of where we will be. And the other is hopeful optimism. So I think I've always found myself to be incredibly optimistic, while quite cynical in many respects. But a healthy dose of realism is good to temper your optimism. I don't think we all just want to say, oh, it's going to be fine. It's those who aren't suffering as much who can easily just give the flippant, oh, it'll be fine. People will want to travel again. People will want to go to conferences and concerts and all these public gatherings. Everybody will get back to normal. Even if we want to do that, will we be constrained by fear? I think yes. But will there be a lot of constraints on those industries who would provide those services out of fear of liability? And I think that is a resounding yes. So I, I, yeah, I personally would love to go to a restaurant right now. Takeout is great. Doing my fair share of, of trying to support our restaurants here to, to get takeout. But I want to go to a restaurant, right? I mean, for anyone who is an extrovert, you are probably just slowly dying on the inside, having to sit inside this much and, and not get to go interact because you feed off the energy of other people. So I can't wait for things to open back up. I will be the first to want to go. I think I'll probably go to Disney just because I want to go do something fun. But I just don't know if, if realistically there is going to be a tidal wave and an outpouring of people getting back to their normal routines. I, I think it's going to be tempered for, for quite some time. Well, it's going to be interesting because, uh, of course, they're talking about trying to do something with the NBA season and finish, uh, at least have the playoffs. And, of course, in Florida, college football is very, very important, as well as NFL football. So they're trying to see, you know, are we going to be able to have college football season? Are we going to have NFL uh, baseball season? All that. The thing I think that's going to be so challenging for stuff like that is even if the NBA does their playoffs and they're like, you know what, we'll have the players come in and they're going to be quarantined and we're not going to have fans. I mean, it's going to give us entertainment and stuff, but still you've got to quarantine every player and especially in football, because let's say an offensive lineman gets the coronavirus test positive. Well, then all of a sudden your entire offensive line and defensive line has to be quarantined. So then your teams, you're losing your teams right there. So it's a real tough issue. I know a lot of people are ready to, going and rolling with it. But I just think, like you said, it's going to take a few months and all these precautions. It's not an easy answer. But, but we'll get we'll, we'll get back there, don't you think? I think we will. I don't know so much about baseball. I, I think I think at best with NBA – well, this is just a hunch. I think with the NBA and basketball, it's very possible that they could have the playoffs in an empty arena and just have the essential players because I think they would quarantine – 
those guys enough where they each have their own hotel room and they're tested before. Because like WWE and wrestling, they're doing everything at their performance center right now in Orlando. So they're kind of controlling that. But I think with football, it's like, how do you have a football game going on in a stadium of 90,000 seats and it's just completely empty? I mean, it would just be so weird watching that. But yet I could watch a, a basketball game with nobody in there because you could play it in a smaller facility or whatever, even with baseball. But football, I think, is just different because there aren't just random football fields out there unless you go to like a practice field and then that looks weird. Right. <laughs> no, and, and, but think of even just watching late night comedians right now, it is so awkward. I mean, because you, you're used to the laugh trap or, you know, the true laughter coming from an audience. And, and I think the same energy is necessary for professional athletes. You get hyped up by a crowd when there is nobody cheering. It, it just seems so bizarre to me. I will tell you, as a as somebody who loves to do public speaking, doing a webinar is just will never be the same for me. I, I will never get the same adrenaline rush or the same high. I'll do them all day long, but it is not the same as having a live audience in front of you. And so I, I'm sure that's true for everybody in any performance capacity. It's just that's going to be a, a weird weird transition if if we do have these empty auditoriums and you know empty fan base where you just are performing for only four people or 12 people or 30 people rather than 300 3000 30000 well and the thing that that you hit on that I think's a fair point too is ultimately it's going to come down to liability as well they I think they're going to be so afraid for a little while to say, yeah, we're going to open up for NFL games or Disney World or wherever, and then lo and behold, someone comes back and says they have corona, and then there's a lawsuit from a plaintiff's lawyer wanting to bring a claim, and it's just like the risk management doesn't want to have to deal with that. I mean, they want to open as soon as they can, but I mean, there's a lot of PR issues to think about, but I'm hopeful that they'll at least have the football season ready to go because that could really start like in September, and you know, hopefully – you get things ready to go or you can start practicing. You have at least a month of practice and, and stuff, but we'll see. I'm with you. I, I think we'll get back from it quick. I, you know, listen, a guy named Richard Reed tried to put a shoe bomb on a plane and detonate it. And that rattled the transportation industry for airlines, right? For, for everybody has to start taking off their shoes after one idiot did that. And then, you know, 9-11, you would think nobody would have ever gotten on a plane again. Right. Or would not want to fly, you know, to certain countries. But we start to adapt to what becomes a new normal. I think you and I can both remember in our lifetime not going through any security at all in an airport. Right. You walk straight to a gate and you could walk up with your family and friends straight up to the gate with them. You didn't have to have your bags checked. You didn't have to have a ticket to go to the gate. So we'll adapt to whatever this new normal will become with sanitation protocols or a modified social distance type protocol. But I I think some of it you just can't retrofit because it won't be financially feasible. I don't think staying six feet away from each other is going to be feasible in any type of stadium or a movie theater or anything like that forever just doesn't make any sense. But I do think that we will adapt to some other protocols that with time, we won't even flinch and they won't feel like an inconvenience anymore. So hopefully there is you know some good that comes out of it from a sanitation health perspective. But on the other hand, man, I, I hope it's quick. Yeah, I agree. All right. Transitioning from real estate to your cannabis law practice. So tell me about this practice that you started 
because it's relatively new and unique, but it's a very hotly debated topic here in Florida, and it's very interesting for um, listeners throughout the entire country, but also in my hometown area of Kentucky, because in Kentucky, hemp law has become a big thing. So when I was checking out your bio, and I actually got referred by my friend Amanda, who's a good friend of yours, and I was like, I didn't even know that they had a, a cannabis law industry practice until a couple of years ago, and I'm like, here's Tara. She's like the chair of this. She's like an expert. So talk to me about this area of practice. Well, I'll tell you, every time somebody says, oh my gosh, Tara, she's the weed expert. I always have to give the caveat like, wait a second. <laughs> like, I'm the weed law expert. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I get introduced at, at like a conference. You're like, oh, and this girl knows everything about cannabis. I'm like, again, I just want to like say cannabis law, if you don't mind giving that disclaimer. But I fell into it years ago when the laws first changed in Florida and we had the Compassionate Medical Use Act. And so the Compassionate Medical Use program allowed for a low THC, high CBD. And so if you're pretending you don't know what THC is, that's the compound in cannabis that produces a high or a euphoria. CBD, I always equate that to like a supercharged Flintstones vitamin, right? It's got great medicinal properties, but it does not produce that euphoric high that is um, so traditional with how people look at marijuana. CBD and THC. So when these laws changed, the state of Florida gave out five licenses, and we happened to have been representing as a land use client one of those five companies. So Bruce Knox was a client of our firm, and he's still a friend of mine to this day. He's absolutely brilliant and built a, a wonderful company that he then sold out his interest in called Knox Medical. So this was one of the first companies to be licensed, and I ended up helping them from a land use perspective of navigating local government regulations and how local governments were regulating the dispensaries, so the brick-and-mortar retail dispensing locations that they were opening up statewide. And you can imagine, I mean, I was used to going to hearings and being the absolute least popular person, if not most hated person in the room, representing the developer. It was a mind-blowing experience going in because you had this mix of like what I called the tie-dye t-shirt brigade that was always at the public hearing. And they would get up and talk about how weed should be legal. And I'm like, oh, it's not really helping my cause at all. And then you would have, you know, the moms against drugs who were there saying that this was going to ruin the community. You'd have law enforcement in the back of the room. I mean, it was just a really interesting time. And so I was there. I wasn't there to advocate for, to convince people that you should like medical cannabis or support the program or use medical cannabis. I was there to educate people on the laws and then try to persuade local governments that the sky wasn't going to fall if they allow for a medical marijuana dispensary that was only open to patients at that time who had cancer or epilepsy, essentially. I say I fell into it because while I had at the time been telling my firm internally, I think that this is going to be a very big practice area. Look at the trajectory in every other state and their mature cannabis markets. These are very big practice areas for firms, but that opportunity came to me and I was very fortunate to be able to work from the ground up when those laws were, were just coming about in Florida. And so it was, it was really interesting for me, Ben, because 
you know, if you think about a new area of law, I mean, maybe somebody's going to be a pandemic lawyer now, I guess, but you're probably not going to deal with pandemics as frequently as you're going to deal with cannabis issues in every single state. I hope, gosh, I hope that's the case, but there was no practice area that I could have imagined having the opportunity in my lifetime that could be as impactful across the board. Because if you say you're a cannabis lawyer, I mean, you're dealing with all of the traditional complex legal issues that other practitioners deal with, right? I mean, it's finance, corporate, bankruptcy, whether you can even go through bankruptcy, real estate, litigation, employment, all of that falls under the umbrella of cannabis law. And at that time, it didn't matter how many years of experience you had in cannabis law because the law was literally just written. Everybody was learning it at the same time. And I realized if I can become an expert on this, and put in a significant amount of time to try to know more than anybody else knows about this, then I will outpace people who have been practicing two times, three times, four times, five times longer than I have. And in many respects, that became the case. And so now I teach a class at the University of Florida Law School on marijuana law and policy. And so I've taught that for two years. I'll teach that for a third year this fall. But then in addition, I also am lecturing at seminars. I think I've done over 76 of them in in the last two years, teaching at industry seminars and lecturing at conferences to people who have practiced far longer than I have, but it's just about putting the time and the effort to become an expert in that area. So to me, it was a perfect opportunity to find something that I ultimately ended up loving doing, kind of combined all the talents that I thought I had in land use practice and that advocacy and the competitive debate background that I had to an area of law that was just going to have explosive growth. Yeah, and it is very interesting how it has grown because even in Kentucky, they have not passed marijuana there, but they went with him. And they were looking at a crop to be a a cash crop replacement for tobacco. And the whole thing with the CBD was very important for them. It was important for the ag people to be able to develop it and have more of a cash crop. And it's helpful for medical things and stuff. So they've been going through that on the hemp side. And then, you know, in Florida and other states, they've been addressing it. Because regardless of someone's position on the marijuana, there is a proven medicinal use for that and for CBD. So, and our job as lawyers is, like you said, I mean, if someone wants to comply with the law, we help them comply with the law. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it is interesting. What are the trends that you're seeing in this right now? So, you know, cannabis has evolved since its inception in Florida and certainly nationwide. So you're seeing a lot of sophisticated players entering the business. In the beginning, it states back to late 90s when California first enacted Prop 215 to, to legalize cannabis medicinally there. You weren't able to find good service providers, right? And even in Florida in the beginning, I mean, there are still firms today that will not have a cannabis practice group because it is federally illegal. The Florida Bar has opined that you as a lawyer can provide guidance to clients in the cannabis industry so long as you tell them it is federally illegal, right? You got to give that disclaimer. And so long as you're not, you know, aiding and abetting the furtherance of of a crime. So kind of the obvious that we know as a practitioner. So we're able to give that advice to clients in the cannabis field, but the stigma around it has still prevented a lot of firms from taking on that type of clientele. And unfortunately, that stigma has prevented just across the board, strong ancillary service providers from wanting to, to readily enter the market. 
now in the last 10 years, you've seen large name companies and you know ex-CEOs, CFOs, and CEOs of those companies going into the cannabis industry. But there's now more of that Wall Street white shoe feel to a lot of, uh, of the cannabis industry nationwide and internationally too. The next biggest trend we're seeing and a huge push, right? So Right. Everybody, you know, medical cannabis, the majority of states have these medical cannabis programs, over a dozen that have adult use programs of some form of, you know, either 18 or 21 and up adult recreational use. And so we're going to continue to see those types of changes in the market, especially if there's some sort of federal legalization. I always kind of laugh when people talk about federal legalization because you'll hear people say, oh, we, you know, this needs to be legalized federally. And I look at some of these folks and I'm thinking, you are a mom and pop local cannabis shop. If this is legalized federally, it most likely will put you out of business, right? Because if we have federal legalization, if that comes in the form of a scheduling of this drug, so if we if we take it off of a schedule one drug, we reschedule cannabis, that's going to put it under the control most likely of the FDA. And if you got to go through the FDA for their drug approval process, that is not something that a local mom and pop shop is going to be able to survive. We are going to have the Walmarts of weed where major companies are going to have a domestic presence in every state and buy enough small companies in the market. So it'll, it'll be interesting over the next two to four years to see what happens with any federal changes, whether that's decriminalization, descheduling, rescheduling of the drug on the cannabis side. But separately, one of the hottest topics right now is with hemp. So like you brought up Kentucky. I mean, that is that is like basically the pioneer picture boy state for hemp for Mitch McConnell and his efforts, thankfully, because it is a huge agricultural industry that is absolutely insane that we ever had it categorized the same as cannabis from a Controlled Substances Act from a federal perspective. So it wasn't until the 2018 Farm Bill that hemp was removed as a Schedule One drug. Now, then Schedule One drugs are just a whole host of drugs that I'm going to assume you've never done, like heroin and ecstasy and peyote and some other drugs like that. But marijuana was one of them, and so was hemp. Until the 2018 Farm Bill, when the, the federal government changed the definition, so hemp, by definition, has 0.3% THC by dry weight or less. So, so long as you have less than 0.3% THC, you are hemp. So really hemp and cannabis come from the same genus of plants or cannabis sativa L. That family of a plant is where both hemp and marijuana come from. But just so long as you stay under a threshold of THC, you are considered hemp. If you leave that hemp in the field, by the way, just a little too long, that can trip that threshold and all of a sudden you have a field full of marijuana. So from an agricultural perspective, it, it is it is very interesting. But just from a, an economic perspective, right? Look back to World War II. There was a film called Hemp for Victory. It was a campaign by the U.S. government encouraging farmers to grow as much hemp as possible. And that's because hemp has about 25 to 35,000 different uses. Ford made a car out of hemp. You can really? make Steel yes, steel replacements out of hemp, concrete replacements out of hemp, textiles, biodiesels. It is an unbelievable industry. But until we were able to unlock the potential for mass production of hemp, we were never going to see those types of industries growing because nobody wants to pay $10 for a ream of hemp paper, no matter how environmentally sustainable and friendly 
that is. People want to pay 10 cents for a ream of paper, but if we can get head paper to be on par with the cost of regular paper, well then heck, that is a viable industry. So now we have hemp becoming a true commodity and that's where this market is going to, I, I believe, dynamically change over the next 10 years. Everyone is just talking about CBD right now, right? And, that, and CBD is a byproduct of hemp and you can find it everywhere. Your local coffee shop, Amazon, farmer's markets, Kroger's, some CVS's. So CBD is that byproduct that if it comes from hemp, it's federally legal. If it comes from marijuana, it's federally illegal, even though it is essentially the same compound. Now to, to further confuse your listeners, if they have ever heard of something called epidiolex, that is a drug that is the only drug approved by the FDA that has CBD that comes from marijuana inside of the drug. So the reason that there's a ton of this confusion is the FDA has approved the compound from the cannabis plant to put into a treatment for seizures, two rare seizure disorders, and they're trying to expand that. It has recently been descheduled. Now, this is what creates the confusion is because everybody says, oh, well, you know, CBD obviously has these medicinal properties. It's proven by Epidiolex. Well, yeah, I agree. I think we we have clearly concluded that CBD has, has some proven benefits for reducing seizures. But CBD, because the FDA has approved it, can't be put into food products. And the FDA has put this out as, pol as a policy statement that you cannot add it into food or dietary supplements for interstate commerce, nor can you claim that CBD has medical benefits, unless you're Epidiolex. And you know, you then can get Epidiolex for $32,500 a year, which is a staggering price when you compare it to like a $20 teacher model uh, that you could get each month somewhere online. But the reason that the FDA doesn't want us putting CBD in a bunch of products and claiming that it's a medicine is because there aren't enough studies to back up those medical claims that are being made. So we don't want to have harm done to consumers, but also it would be the equivalent of the FDA saying, yeah, you can put out penicillin lollipops. Now we have penicillin and we've approved that as a drug. Now you go ahead and put that in coffees and lattes and brownies and whatever else you want. Everybody would laugh at that. But CBD took on this, you know, this very popular supplements uh, position here in the United States. So everybody just kind of scoffs at the FDA's stance when really they are out for public protection, though I, I, I do believe some of their positions are, are misguided when it comes to how they dealt with the CBD industry. So this was the most long-winded way of answering your very simple question on trends. But I think that we're going to be seeing a lot more in the CBD space. I do think there will be some market corrections across the, uh, the board for cannabis and there will be market corrections for hemp because as the supply has astronomically grown because of the floodgates opening on a federal level with the hemp industry, we are seeing pricing come down. So there's there's going to be some unfortunate market corrections for folks within states where they have an oversupply and not enough buyers. But on the other hand, I think that we are going to unleash a new industry with opportunities across the board for some replacements for everyday products that you and I utilize that can um, hopefully in the future be made out of hemp. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, that, that was a lot of information right there. I was trying to, <laughs> I was trying to digest all that. Did Just you listen back three times and you'll get it. <laughs> I know. I, I'm going to have to sign up for your class if you're <laughs> something. Did you say that, all right, on the CBD product, because I mean, I've saw like a lot of my friends who happen to be models, they were like 
post on Instagram about this CBD oil or it helps them sleep or this or that. And I've seen like CBD products for, I guess, skin care. Did you say that the FDA said you you can't put it in food? I heard that, but you can't put it in these other products and advertise. Is that right? Yeah. So, so the FDA has some very specific guidance when it comes to what you can do with CBD. Now they aren't final rules. So these are just policy statements. And so to date, the FDA has not approved a marketing application for cannabis for the treatment of any disease or condition, right? There's only one and that's Epidiolex. So there are no FDA approved drug products that contain CBD derived from hemp. And so a lot of companies are putting out hemp-derived CBD, cures Alzheimer's, cancer, coronavirus, Ebola, all these crazy statements, which they really shouldn't be making those types of medical claims. So the FDA is saying, hey, listen, CBD derived from hemp has not been subjected to FDA review as part of a drug approval process. They haven't been evaluated as to whether they work, what the proper dosage may be if they do work, how they could interact with other drugs, if they have dangerous side effects or other safety concerns. And the FDA has come out and said, we understand there is a huge push and interest for CBD. So we want to do something about it, but we don't know when that's actually going to happen or what they're even going to do. So there are restrictions on what you can do when it comes to putting CBD into food products, dietary supplements, and, and, and the marketing claims and labels and packaging that you can have on those products to try to keep yourself out of the purview of the FDA. So while it's not as if all these CBD companies have to submit their packages and their products to the FDA, they're not, and they're just hoping that they're not doing something that runs afoul of those FDA policy statements in a manner that's going to put them in the dragnet of an FDA warning letter, which those warning letters are no good for investor relations, PR, you know, sales. Nobody wants to see the FDA slap a warning letter on you that tells you you're making false and misleading claims and you're in violation of their policy statements. Yeah. So the bottom line, a lot of those people that were advertising that stuff, they're just kind of running the risk and they're hoping they don't get caught. Correct. Yeah. And it's, yeah, so it's, it's, it's certainly a legal gray area right now, but the FDA has, has taken a pretty broad stance with regards to putting any CBD products, you know, and trying to put them to market as a dietary supplement or some other type of medicine. I think we're going to, these regulations will evolve. Hopefully there will be some final rulemaking, but, you know, even in our state alone, we have one district court in Florida that said a, a lawsuit against a CBD company should be stayed until the FDA issues final rules. And another district court in Florida said, forget it, this lawsuit on the exact same grounds can go forward, regardless of the fact that the FDA has not issued its final rules. So, you know, it's, it's a world of a mess in, in the legal, from a legal perspective. And it also can cause a lot of confusion, unfortunately, for consumers as well. My takeaway from this is if my listeners, who some of my listeners are in this field, that's why I picked this topic for the discussion, they may need to reach out to Tara to ask a few questions to make sure what they're doing is is correct. Oh, I, I am more than happy to, Ben. This is such a popular area. Some of the recent studies that just look at market analysis of, of who knows about CBD and who's taking it, and one of the polls that I read was about 95% of consumers know what CBD is. More than one in five adults have tried CBD. Nearly one in five have used it in the past six months. I think that's like 40 million customers. And about 60 million plus also said they were likely to try CBD products in the near future. And with seven out of 10 of those consumers believe CBD offers some type of benefit, 
then I think we're going to see an increase. And we have online sales. We've seen an increase in online sales of CBD products in the past couple of weeks because people are having a, a push towards wellness type products because of all of the, the coronavirus issues that they're seeing. That's not me saying that it cures coronavirus or helps with it, but that's just kind of a market trend we're seeing is, is more CBD sales. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. So let me ask this. If somebody starts this kind of business or whatever, what's the licensing requirements? Yeah, that'll depend. So under the USDA's program, the USDA, their their program was really about cultivation of hemp, right? So you can cultivate hemp either through a license issued by your state after your state has gotten their program approved by the USDA directly from the USDA if your state doesn't end up having a state approved program, or you can have a license under the 2014 Farm Bill. Um, So some states and operators are going to continue to operate under those provisions during a one-year period until the 2018 Farm Bill says it then takes effect. So there's a couple different ways that you can get licensed to cultivate. Now, that's what the 2018 Farm Bill gives those parameters of how states have to issue cultivation licenses and what the overarching regulations are for those state frameworks. States can have more strict programs than what the FDA says, and you're definitely going to see that. So it is going to create a patchwork of different regulations nationwide, which unfortunately is good only for lawyers, right? Because that's going to cause a lot of confusion for those in the industry and a lot of complex legal hurdles if every single state is operating somewhat differently. And all the states are going to have their own requirements for how you get licensed to process, manufacture, transport, or retail hemp goods. So that process is very clearly and easily outlined on our Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services website. But like I said, every state is going to be handling this differently. So you want to be very aware of the regulations for the state that you're in. And then if you're engaged in interstate commerce, you need to be aware of the regulations of the state in which you are shipping a product to or retailing products in. Yeah, I was getting ready to ask that question because let's just say, you know, we got Kentucky and Florida here that would... Let's say they both allow it. Well, what if Tennessee doesn't allow it and you got to get through Georgia? I mean, you can't unless you're shipping through air. I mean, you've got to go through Tennessee and Georgia. So is is that trucker going to be subject to violation of the law there? Well, the good news is the 2018 Farm Bill says that you cannot prohibit. So states and Indian tribes cannot prohibit the interstate transportation of lawfully produced hemp products. Now, we've seen a couple cases recently where in December, for example, there was a a U-Haul that was stopped. They had over 3,000 pounds of hemp in it. They had their certificates of analysis from a laboratory showing it was under 0.3% THC, right? So legally, by definition, it was hemp, according to the certificate of analysis. But the local law enforcement seized all 3,000 plus pounds of hemp and put that driver in jail. They ultimately released the driver and released the product when they realized and confirmed that it was, in fact, hemp. But you're going to see these types of issues popping up. There was another case of felony drug trafficking charges on a driver who went through Idaho called the Big Sky case, Big Sky Scientific. That driver was also arrested, faced felony drug charges, and all of their hemp 
was um, seized as well, but it turns out that it wasn't lawfully produced under a 2014 or 2018 Farm Bill program. So just because federal law says hemp is legal doesn't mean just growing it however you want is legal. You still need to comply with your state's requirements because only then are you protected in the interstate transportation of hemp. So there's a, a lot of information you need to have in your transportation manifest to be protected. There will be some unfortunate heartburn for those in the industry transporting product just because of, you know, sometimes a lack of education on a local law enforcement or confusion by local law enforcement. Or really, Ben, if you think about it, hemp and marijuana plants, like the bud, looks exactly the same. So I can't really blame law enforcement for wondering whether you're just saying it's hemp when it's actually marijuana, because they've been catching people trying to do that as well, passing off big marijuana shipments or small shipments as hemp and putting in a fake certificate of analysis or fake shipping documents, you know, from the origin state claiming that this is, this is actually hemp when in reality it's not. So I don't want to fault law enforcement too much for doing their job, but on the other hand, there is just a general confusion and a lack of reliable field testing for law enforcement to typically tell on the spot whether or not the product you have is in fact hemp or if it's definitionally marijuana. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, it's a, it's a very interesting practice area because like you said, we've just in the area of cannabis law, we talked about real estate, we talked about regulations and licensing, you talked about employment issues litigation, land use. I mean, it's the whole gamut of it. And it's going to be very interesting to see how this develops throughout the country. So you, Tara is the expert. So if you have questions, because Rodney has a question. Rodney, do you have a question on this? Do you have a question? All right. No, I mean, I, it's funny just because a lot of my listeners from Kentucky and Florida are in this, not as users per se, but is it's... He trying, is he trying to cut us off? Yeah. I think he... I think he needs to have a little break here. Do you need a break? <laughs> All right. He's, he's going to take a break. The thing about it is, though, is, I mean, my university at Murray State University, their whole ag department was very involved in a lot of the research for this, a lot of the um, policy issues in Kentucky. So it's, it's being looked at on the academic levels very heavily. A lot of investors are going in there, and a lot of ag companies are looking to diversify their production. So it's something that's going to continue to grow. You know, it's pretty fascinating. So for my listeners, if you have questions, Tara is an excellent resource to reach out to because as you can hear from this episode, it's very complicated and you want to make sure that you're going down the right path. So speaking about different paths, as lawyers, you know, you're, you're a shareholder at the Lowndes firm. I was a lawyer at a big firm for a long time. How do you see law firms changing in light of COVID-19? Because in a way, I mean, COVID is encouraging people to work from home more, but, you know, lawyers are always able to do that. But, I mean, I'd like to get your take on what you see the trend being in law firms after COVID, where they're encouraging more people to work from home and do more conference calls and Skype videos and stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, if you, if you think about just the amount of time it takes the average person to get to and from the office... You get up in the morning, you're putting on a suit. If you're, you know, ladies, maybe doing your hair, not that guys don't spend time doing their hair too. Right? Say you're taking 30 minutes just to get ready to go into the office and then you're commuting. Some people are commuting 15, 
25, 45 minutes to get into the office. Then you get into the office, and I don't ever want to downplay the benefits of camaraderie and interactions with others in the, in the office, but you're probably wasting 15, 20 minutes unless you're a Scrooge and walk straight into your office, close your door, and don't talk to anybody. So we may have now just eaten up somewhere between one to two hours before you've even done any productive work in the morning. And that was just getting ready to get to work and be at work, right? And then you have the end of the day where you're doing it all over again and leaving, shutting down, you know, closing out for the day, getting in the car, fighting rush hour traffic maybe or other traffic and going home. So have we just wasted now somewhere between one to four hours a day when people could be doing other productive things? And I'm not saying that means you need to add four more hours a day of billable work, but that's other hours that you could fill with, oh, I don't know, enjoying family or friends or doing something else that you like and being able to de-stress and get a better feeling of balance. So I think there will always be a place for an office because there is a huge value in, in the types of teamwork and interaction that you can have when you collaborate. But now that there are where you can share your screen and desktop with somebody else, those tools are facilitating teamwork and Zoom and WebEx and all those other platforms are facilitating teamwork in a way that just wasn't possible technologically 10 years ago, or probably even what, five years ago at most law firms. So I think it is great that we are finding ways that people can be productive without having to physically be in an office. I do always think that we'll want to have offices for other purposes and some firms will just rely on that model regardless of what the coronavirus teaches us. So I think that you're going to see a mix of, of some shifting in the way that firms are operating. But if you have firms that own big or own or rent large buildings or multiple floors in a building, this might be a great time for them to consider downsizing whether they really need all of the space that they actually have. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting because unfortunately at law firms, unless you're a plaintiff's firm, you're measured by the billable hours more often than not. I mean, once you become partner, you know, collection, well, even when you're an associate, collections are very important. But I mean, ultimately, the billable hours are there. And I think it might be kind of hard for some of the attorneys, especially the more the old school attorneys to be like, well, you know what, I'm not seeing you there with FaceTime. How do I know that you're doing the hours? Whereas somebody younger like us might be like, you know what, I don't care as long as you get your work done. But the problem is, is like if I'm working with an associate and that person's not there, I don't know exactly when they're going to have it to me. And so if you got a client deadline, you know, that lack of communication can be a problem. Even though email is great, it's like, well, you know what, sometimes maybe someone's eating lunch or they're walking their dog like Rodney who wants to go out right now or something. And so I think as lawyers, they can be kind of anal and be like, you know what, when, when am I going to get my answer. But I think the option of working at home is a very good thing for the reasons you mentioned. Rodney agrees. That way I get more time with him. <laughs> Come here. All right. I mean, you think about it in Orlando and Miami and the, the towns where you have really bad traffic. If you don't live right by the office, you are driving at least an hour probably for your commute. So that is time where people are losing out. They, they could be billing or, or whatever. So I, I think that is very important. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, it also provides an opportunity maybe for the moms who are also lawyers. Maybe, you know, you got um, kids that are in school and you prefer 
to maybe come in a little bit later. And that way you take your daughter or your, your son to school and you can go ahead, work from home, check your emails, get a few things done. Or maybe you just want to work from home from like a Friday or a Monday or something like that. And especially with the, the women who have just had a child. I mean, that might help their situation getting back to work sooner. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it's definitely COVID-19 causes everybody to think about how they can change and do things more efficiently. So I think law firms are going to be right there with those kind of companies. All right. So next question. And this is before we get to the pop culture questions, because I know I told you, I was like, yeah, it's going to be about 40 minutes. And I'm like, we're almost an hour and a half here. But you should have known, though, with two lawyers on there, a conversation for 40 minutes is never going to happen. Oh, don't ever give me a microphone, my friend. Yeah, it'll it'll, it'll go on. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so you're now a shareholder at the Lowndes Firm. And for those who are not familiar with Orlando, our, the Lowndes Firm is one of the top firms in Orlando. How many lawyers do you have there? What, about 115, 120? We're under 100 now. So yeah, but we are, yeah, we've, we've kind of historically been one of the largest regional firms because of that size. So you're, you're putting about, uh, you know, when you have close to 100 people, just lawyers, and then, you know, with a whole host of other support staff that goes into the machine that is a law firm, we fit a lot into our building that we call the mothership. So we have a whole campus that houses uh, the, the, the firm and, and everyone who works there. Yeah, it was like a whole block of buildings. I think it was yep. what, three stories and... <laughs> But it was like right on Lake Eolo, so it was nice. And I, after I went to the office, I walked around Lake Eolo just to kind of check it out. So um, what are your goals and aspirations as you progress through your legal career? I mean, I, my goals have, from the beginning have always been to be the best provider of services to my clients, right? And then I, I defined those goals over the year. What services? Well, I wanted to be uh, a, an expert in land use law. And building, you know, building that practice and an expert in the cannabis and controlled substances field and have built that practice. So I certainly think that those continue to be goals of mine. Don't think you will ever know everything. So it's just a matter of continually doing your best to know as much as humanly possible and know where to find the right answers on behalf of your clients. So I just strive to be a lawyer that my, my clients appreciate and they can rely on for more than just black letter legal advice, right? To, to be able to be uh, more of a counselor than just providing kind of that reading of a statute that anybody could do. So I hope that all my clients are, are, are happy with their services and do my best to figure out what each client needs and then exceed those expectations. And then one of the strong pillars of our law firm is giving back to the community and making a mark that way. So certainly would love to, to continue. And, and my goals and aspirations include just not only those, those legal goals and aspirations for my career, but also to be able to give back to the community in some meaningful ways. That's great. You know, a lot of firms, they do put the emphasis on, um, you know, giving back to the community. And even with the, the COVID-19 going on, a lot of people are trying to step out and help people and do what they can to, to support the people that are in need. So, all right. You've heard it from Tara Tedro about real estate going on in Orlando and Central Florida. We've heard about the cannabis practice and learned a lot more that I didn't know that much about at all. So really enjoyed hearing about that. But now we've got to get to the living the dream pop culture questions because as lawyers, we need to have a life outside of the law. We can't just sit there and bill hours all day. So, Tara, I'm going to ask you a few questions to see if you truly are living the dream. All right. First question. What are your three favorite TV series, past or present? I just have to shamelessly admit that when you first gave me all of the living the dream options for questions that could get asked, 
I would just like everybody listening to know that I am so not cool at all because I could not answer probably 90% of the typical questions that your guests get asked because I just did not grow up watching TV and movies. So I, I hope everybody doesn't wonder why I'm not answering the really fun questions that you've probably heard from other guests. And I think that's probably why. But my three favorite TV series, I'm going to go with Game of Thrones, Breaking Bad, and then I feel like I've got a tight tie right now with Tiger King and Westworld. Yeah, I'm, I'm conflicted on those two. See, I haven't watched any of Tiger King, but I, oh I, my God. I have not. Ben. Ben, ben, I thought we were really getting along and I am just so disappointed right now to hear this. I expect you to report back tomorrow morning with the seven hours of it that you will watch tonight. It well, is so I'll have to report back on Monday, I guess. I've been trying to work out and keep in shape and ride my bike and keep up with wrestling and what sports I can. <laughs> but when I see all these photos on social media of uh, like the rednecks with uh, the mullets and stuff, I'm like, I can see that in Brevard County. I don't need to watch TV for that. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I told you this before we started. I have no social media outside of LinkedIn, which I use a lot, but I, I don't consider that social media. So everybody has to send me screenshots of memes and all the other funny stuff going on with Tiger King online. Um, but it is so absolutely bizarre. It is It is sad. It is hilarious. It's on one hand, absolutely depressing, but on the other hand, just so beyond what any writer could have ever come up with for a fictional series that it is so addicting. It is the, I believe it's the top view documentary in the world right now. It is I think so. unbelievable. Unbelievable. You got to watch it. Well, that's the thing, you know, before we got on the show, we we're talking about comedians and stuff. The really good comedians, you get material just by real life situations. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. You couldn't script this stuff, Ben. It is so ridiculous. I mean, you can walk into a Walmart and I mean, you come out, I come out with a good 30 minutes of material. <laughs> Matter of fact, I went to Publix a couple of months ago. There was a guy, I was like, man, that guy looks familiar. I mean, I'm like, I, I just know I know that guy or I should know him. So he was in Publix and he had, was in like the yogurt section. And so it was a big long aisle. And so he had on like the wife beater tank top. He had on, he had a dark black mustache the shortish black hair. He had on white frosted jeans from the mid eighties, white tennis shoes, like the cons, converse, high top tennis shoes. I'm like, gosh, I got to know who that is. So I just went up and asked him, I was like, excuse me, you look really familiar. What's your name? And he said, Freddie. I'm like, Freddie, what's your last name? He said Ford. And I'm like, gosh, I, I don't know. I thought I knew you. But then I turned around and it, it dawned on me who this guy was. He looked just like an 80s version of Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen. So he, was, <laughs> so he was like the white trash version of Freddie Mercury from the 80s. That is awesome. You're like, do you mind if I take your photo? He's like, yes, I do. You're like, all right, never mind. <laughs> he did kind of point to the sky and give a little pose, but. Oh, hey. <laughs> see, when he said his name was Freddie Ford, the reason why I was like, he's the white trash version of Freddie Mercury, because Ford is the lower end version of um, the Lincoln Mercury. <laughs> Not that Fords are low end, but I mean, it's just Ford marketed Lincoln Mercury as a little bit above a Ford. But I tell you what, the way trucks are now, I, just for the heck of it, I was at a dealership 
And the price for these like brand new Ford trucks, GMC trucks, they're like sixty, seventy thousand dollars. I'm like, you can buy a Porsche for that. Oh, my friend, yeah. But that Porsche, you're not going to be able to haul a bunch of timber in the back of it. So, well, that's true. That's why I do have an SUV vehicle and another vehicle. That way, I can haul Rodney around. Well, well, hell, you're living the dream. <laughs> I've just got one. I've got to up my game. Well, see, I had a when I got Rodney. I had um, like a roadster. I really need a bigger vehicle anyway, because like I played in softball tournaments and stuff and need to be able to haul things. And plus, if you go on vacation, you need more room. But then I got this bulldog and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to need a bigger vehicle. So I ended up getting him a Jeep. And I got the Jeep because Jeeps are always cool, regardless of how old they are. And then when I moved up to Central Florida, you know, they drive on the beaches with them. So they work. All right. That being said, it all started with Tiger King. I'm going to have to check that out. All right. So speaking of, well, this is a great question. What's the oddest thing that's ever happened to you? Please don't say being on this show. <laughs> I was bit by a barracuda in Mexico when I was really? 18. I was, yes. Gosh. I know. How, how'd that happen? Because, I mean, there. how did that happen? <laughs> So I was spear fishing and no, I'm just kidding. I was just standing there. I had silver toenail polish on. I literally was doing nothing worthwhile or cool at all. I was uh, standing in the ocean. I had silver toenail polish on and lured a barracuda that turns out they had been feeding at the dock of the resort and it came over and took a test bite on my ankle. And so I think I'm the only person who's ever been bit by a barracuda not doing anything sporty at all or swimming around. And so I, uh, I had the distinct pleasure of getting to go to a hospital in Cancun where my mom talked to a doctor in English who only spoke Spanish. So she spoke um, English louder as an attempt to translate into Spanish, apparently. Got to pay in cash for those medical services. And then I got to uh, get stitches with the uh, out of the anesthesia. So that was a very interesting, horrendous process, which I would tell you the human body is unbelievable at helping to adapt to pain. So you quickly forget it, right? So I hear it's like childbirth. You forget how painful it is and then you're willing to do it again. It never deterred me from going back into an ocean, only deterred me from wearing silver toenail polish, which was probably a <laughs> long overdue uh, fashion statement I should have gotten rid of anyway. But yeah, so so getting bit by a barracuda in Mexico was uh, probably the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me. So maybe that barracuda is just kind of a, fa- it was like a, a fashions consultant. He's like, you know what? He's like, he's like, girl, this is not working. You're going to have to change. <laughs> I'm just glad I didn't bite like my calf or anything because they take a test bite and then they come back for more if it's anything worthwhile. Hit my ankle bone and I've got pretty much pencil stick legs as it is, so there would have been a whole lot to, for it to dine on. But it was a uh, it was an odd experience, and I'm glad I haven't had twice. I think once with the barracuda bite is enough for anybody. I'd say so. All right, next question: What are your favorite Orlando or Central Florida hot spots? Hmm. Kabuki Sushi, East End Market, because I also live like two blocks from East End, so it's walkable and I love going there. Hourglass District is also a, a great part of town. F&D Kitchen is an awesome restaurant there. The Mills, Ivanhoe area generally, I would say, you know, Guest House, Tacochina, The Strand, Tori Tori. If you can tell the theme, all of these places are places to eat. So I would say that the, my, my hot spots are all built around some of the best places that I enjoy eating at. 
Yeah, I'm going to check those areas out. I've been to, let's see, I've been to Orlando, downtown Orlando, like three times, and I went to um, Winter Park. I'm trying to think what steakhouse I went to. It's not Houston's. It's um, Oh, Hillstone. Hillstone. That, that would be just, that's my, that's my try and true. Hillstone is so good. That will always be just one of the top best restaurants. Yep. So I went there on recommendation from a friend. All right. Well, good answer. I'll have to check those out. All right. Next question. If a genie granted you three wishes besides ending the coronavirus, what would you wish for? Okay. So we're going to put aside the, I'm a really good person. I'd end starvation and establish world peace answers. Yes. Right? No, no beauty, okay. no beauty queen questions because we know, we know when the beauty queens give that answer, it's nothing but crap. Right. I know. I know. But then you don't want to not say it because you, you sound like a terrible person. Right. So we're just going to put aside that those are not options. Okay. All right. I think one would be if I could hit pause on my career, right? Because I don't want to just leave my career to go travel the world, but I wish I could have the opportunity to travel the world and be able to immerse myself and, you know, meaningfully in some other cultures, not just go for one day and hit the top 10 Yelp review spots and then leave. You know, I'd like to spend some time traveling, but I wouldn't want to do it at the expense of leaving a career and, you know, kind of upending my life sort of thing. So I'd have to be in some suspended reality and go travel the world. That's what I would want. You, to do. you should go to Kentucky, then check it out. We got, oh, um, heck yeah. <laughs> possum, possum trot, monkey's eyebrow near where I'm from. We got a- <laughs> hey, I had, we had two little possums as pets when I was growing up because my brothers found them. But we also had a lot of really weird animals. We never had like a dog or anything. We had like a chinchilla, a flying squirrel, a duck, iguanas, a ton of different snakes, two baby possums. Yeah, we were, I'd like to say we were kind of like the Beverly Hillbillies in Winter Park, Florida, because we had these just totally redneck pets in the backyard of a very nice part of town. So I'm not sure what, you know, code enforcement would have said about some of that, but we at least contained them in a really nice way. Um, so Maybe they were just afraid to go in. <laughs> um, so other wishes. Okay. Some other wishes. Uh, so this will go back to my debate background, and this is not me trying to sound like, oh, I'm just such a good person, but I would really want to bring debate to all students. I, I just, I think it is one of the most impactful educational activities that we can have. And I, I think there is a need for civil discourse and it's just fundamentally lacking in our society right now. And so the, the types of critical thinking skills and communication skills that you get from participating in competitive speech and debate are unparalleled by any other activity that you can do, any other class you can take. So I really wish that everyone had to take a competitive speech and debate program in order to graduate high school. That's my wish. That'd be my second. So that's my dorky wish. And then my third, I don't know. I think I would want like a super cool talent, right? So being a good debater isn't dinner party conversation. It's also not like first date conversation. So if somebody's like, oh, what are you really good at? And I'm like, oh, I'm a three-time national debate champion. Like that doesn't exactly make somebody totally attracted to the idea of dating you or like wanting to spend a lot of time around you. So I don't want my super cool talent to be debate, right? I would want it to be something else. And I don't know what that really is, but I, I just wish, you know, have you ever wanted to go to like a dinner party and someone has a piano and you're like, oh, I can kind of play the piano. And then you perfectly and casually bust out Beethoven 
or you like go to a fun karaoke night and everyone's like, oh, you go sing. And you're like, oh, I'm not even that good. And you get up and you sound like Celine Dion type of thing. Or like I can free solo climb a mountain with, you know, like just my fingers and not fall off and die. Like I feel like those would be very cool talents and I would take any of those types of talents because I don't, I don't feel like I have any like incredibly cool, noteworthy talent like that. So my third wish would be like, Jeannie, pick a really cool one and get that to me. That was my third one. I once went to a party and I had to dress up as Axl Rose and I did a lip sync contest and I actually won. So no, oh, actually, hey. actually, no, no, I got second. I got second. It was that time when I went to the um, Playboy Mansion with Rodney Dangerfield. That, that was telling well, you about. So I, I got, well, it was, it was her St. Patrick's Day party. And so anyway, they came up and they're like, you're Rodney's grandson, right? I'm like, yeah. And, um, so they're like, well, you're on in 15 minutes. I'm like, I'm on. What do you mean I'm on? They're like, well, he signed you up for the lip sync contest. Or who are you going to be? So I'm a big Guns N' Roses fan. So I'm like, well, let me try that. So I did the best I could. You know, there was someone who did like a Michael Jackson impression and stuff, but I ended up coming in second place because there was a, a group of midgets. And I know it's not the politically correct term, but I can't think of anything else. Little people, I guess. But they were like little kids. And they won, but then they were like a pro band. I'm like, well, that's not fair. You can't oh, have that. But anyway. That means you won. If they got first place and you got second, technically you won. So Yeah, well, I didn't get jack squat for it, but it came out all right. It came out all right. Same, my friend, and the story that you get to tell. Yep. So, you know, gosh, what was it you are talking about, the debate? That is kind of funny, though, because I watched Old School over the weekend. I don't know if you saw that movie with Will Ferrell. So I love that movie because, first off, I can relate to it because Luke Wilson, first off, he's a fellow Wilson. But second, his career in the movie was as a real estate lawyer. So I had that in common. And I used to hold like events and parties and stuff. So it's kind of like I could relate to that guy. But anyway, if you remember from the movie, when they were doing that competition for the fraternity to stay in, they had a speech and debate competition. And Will Ferrell... I mean, they prepared and they, the other side brought in like James Carville to debate. And so all of a sudden, Will Farrell answers this question, just pulls this great answer out of thin air. And then for the rebuttal, and they're like, what's the rebuttal? He's like, we can't. He said it perfectly. So there you go. <laughs> debate was very important. That's right. That's right. <laughs> all right. I guarantee you, if a genie comes out of the bottle and you ask about for debate to be included, that's going to be like a first. I would guarantee that's probably a first. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I think everyone thinks I wasted a wish, but that's okay. You'll, you would agree if you thought. <laughs> well, not necessarily, because if you think about it, if you watch these political candidate debates, regardless of what side of the fence you're on as far as politics, whatever, they're always train wrecks because no one follows the rules. Oh, yeah. So, all right. So final question. So how is Tara Tedro living the dream? Oh man, every day just living the dream. I, I don't know if there's one good way in which I'm doing that, but I think I'm just... Well, you're on this show. That's one. Yeah, this, is, this is my number one way I'm living the dream. Well, I guess if, we're, if, if I have to circle back to the, you know, I, I have a career that I love. I, I'm surrounded by, you know, wonderful people in my life. I feel like I am an overwhelmingly positive and, and typically always happy person. So I feel very fortunate for that. But I think I'm absolutely living a dream right now because my genie wish might come true because I have been working and we helped with um, a, a state of Florida program to get a grant 
from the Marcus Foundation for $5 million to be put towards a civics and debate program for the state of Florida. And so a very good friend of mine who has been running my nonprofit, her and I started this nonprofit together called the Florida Debate Initiative. And she is now the state director of civics and debate. So we may very well be bringing debate to every high schooler and hopefully middle schooler in the state of Florida in the coming years. So we're, we're going to have the funding to be able to provide those opportunities. So that's one of those, like, I check that box and I could die tomorrow and feel satisfied about that, you know? So that's, I think that is my absolute um, living the dream kind of uh, moment. Um, but otherwise, I don't know. Just I, I think being happy generally is, is, is about as good at living the dream as you can get. Well, you know, to, I guess, touch again on the debate, if you were... I, I'm surprised they I thought they did have debate teams and stuff. But if you think about it, if that's not a, a, like a requirement in the schools, it definitely should be. Because if you're on social media and you see how people go at each other and stuff, I mean, a lot of people just aren't educated as to, to how to debate civilly and get your your point across. And that way, if you disagree with somebody, well, the person across from you is not the the most horrible person in the world and stuff. And it's like people have got to be able to voice differences to each other and to grow. Because if you're doing a debate with somebody, you know what they're saying, you may not agree with it, but they might actually have a point that improves your your position or your, your idea. So if you're just closed-minded all the time, you know, that, that's a negative thing. I, I'm with you. It's I think it's necessary not just for us having you know a, a civil society that can have discourse and disagree with each other, but it's it is really just a bedrock of democracy. And there's this talented high school student named Ella Grace Rodriguez who um, I was fortunate enough for her to interview me for a film that she did as part of a C-SPAN uh, high school student competition, and she came in second nationally. And her whole um, video was with regards to debate and discourse and some of the fallacies with argumentation. So just awesome to see high schoolers when they're interested in this. And, and if you ever come to a high school debate competition or when they have middle schoolers competing, it is shocking how dumb they will make you feel because they are talking about things in such depth that we don't even think about day to day. And you're like, how is this 14 year old talking about geopolitical affairs and the destabilization of nations of nuclear policies? Like how, how are they talking about this? You know? And to me, it warms my heart because I'm like, Oh, thank God. They're not just talking about like Instagrams and likes and, you know, stupid vapid stuff on the internet. Like there are, we do have a next generation who can probably lead this country. So it's necessary on so many levels to, to, to have these types of debate classes. But I think, I'm going to be truly living the dream if we can get this in a majority of all of our high schools in Florida over the next couple of years. Yeah, well, that's a great goal to have. That way you're getting fulfillment from it, the students are getting fulfillment from it, and society as a whole because we're getting people who understand the idea of communicating with each other and getting their point across but respecting somebody else's position as well and trying to be civil about it. So, well, Tara, I really appreciate you coming on the show. We're a little over my schedule, but it was a really great conversation, you know, a lot of interesting topics, to say the least. Like, we're in a time now that is very unique, and like you said, hopefully we don't have to experience the coronavirus again, but the important thing is to come out stronger and better. And the thing with the program on cannabis law, I mean, it's going to be something that's just going to be very interesting for the next few years to see how it progresses, not only throughout the state of Florida, but also throughout the United States. 
because um, it's a very interesting topic that presents a lot of legal issues. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Uh, we really appreciate it. And again, for uh, Tara's contact information, you can visit her law firm's website at www.lounds-law.com. And Lounds is L-O-W-N-D-E-S. You can see that in the show notes at the end of this broadcast. So definitely check her out because I do know that I have listeners on this podcast who are interested in these topics. And if you don't have good legal counsel on these, please get that because you do not want to make a mistake. It can be a, a real bad, bad thing financially for you. So please uh, get proper legal counsel on these issues. And again, Tara, thanks so much for coming on the show. I hope you had a great time. I did. Great. All right. Well, folks, once again, thank you very much for listening. We've gotten a tremendous response on our podcast and we really enjoy all the support that we're getting. So have a great week and we'll see you next time on Living the Dream with Ben and Rod. Thanks for listening to this episode. Find us online at benandrodney.com and follow us on Instagram at benwilsonmiami.com.